0: This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Folks, you know everyone's different. We have different fashion styles. We like different types of food. We have different dreams in life. And that applies to investing as well, because we all have different financial goals and different tolerances for risk. So what if you could choose your maximum risk and reward up front? That way, you could try day trading the markets without worrying about the risk. Well, luckily, you can with binary options on Nadex. Trade global stock indexes, commodities, forex, even economic numbers, all from one account and always with limited risk. See why over 100,000 members choose Nadex. Find out more at nadex.com. Trading on Nadex involves risk and may not be appropriate for all investors. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. Folks, I want to throw a few statistics at you. Did you know that every year, one-third of the food grown for human consumption on this planet is never eaten? For one reason or another, it ends up in the garbage. To put it in perspective, that's 1.3 billion tons of food and an annual cost of $218 billion. Right here in America, families chuck about 25% of the food and beverages they buy at an annual cost of $1,300 to $2,200 per household, all while at the same time, 800 million people around the globe are starving. Now ask yourself, how much did you throw in the garbage or in the disposal after breakfast this morning or after dinner last night? Food waste is a problem, but more than that, it's a stupid problem. There's literally no good reason why Americans should be squandering our money on food we don't eat and pouring our abundance into landfills while others go hungry. Now a new documentary called Wasted, the story of food waste, is highlighting the absurdity of this disparity and offering some innovative solutions from world-renowned chefs like Mario Batali, Dan Barber, Massimo Batura, and Anthony Bourdain, who also serves as executive producer and narrator of the film. Anthony Bourdain is best known for traveling the globe on Anthony Bourdain, Parts Unknown, a traveling docuseries for CNN, which has won five Emmy Awards and a Peabody Award. Bourdain is also a best-selling author, beginning with his first book, Kitchen Confidential, Adventures in the Culinary Underbelly, a candid, hysterical, and sometimes shocking portrait of life in restaurant kitchens, right up to his latest book, published in 2016, titled Appetites, a Cookbook. In fact, Anthony Bourdain now has his own publishing line, Anthony Bourdain Books, and in 2019, he'll launch Bourdain Market in New York City, a curated collection of wholesale and retail food vendors with a Singapore-style hawker market. Today, Anthony Bourdain joins me on the podcast to talk about how he manages to juggle all those projects. He waxes about his favorite countries and shares some of his most cherished comfort foods. He speaks candidly about the problem of food waste, who's to blame, who's working on solutions, and how he and his fellow chefs have been fighting this battle for years in their own kitchens, embracing the snout-to-tail movement, rebranding fish like the Patagonian toothfish as the Chilean sea bass, and even turning table scraps into delicious pork. Plus, Tony and I gripe about foodies and foie gras bands, coming up with Anthony Bourdain in just a moment. I'm joined by chef, author, and tour Anthony Bourdain, who's best known for his travel series Anthony Bourdain, Parts Unknown, on CNN. Now he's executive producer and narrator of an eye-opening new documentary film called Wasted, The Story of Food Waste. Anthony Bourdain, thanks for coming on the podcast. Good to be with you. Well, I'll tell you, I've been a fan of your show, Parts Unknown, and your other show, No Reservations. Before that, I've been wanting to have you on as a guest for a long time now. And I always said, if I ever had Tony on the show, I'm going to ask him if he shares a particular dilemma that I've been having for ages. Sure. Which is, I love food. I love great restaurants. There's nothing better to me than witnessing a chef's creativity and how all the ingredients come together. I love that. But I don't know what to call myself because I absolutely hate the term foodie. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it's too cutesy and too flippant. And from what I know about you, I'm guessing that that term probably annoys the hell out of you too. Yeah, me Am too. I right?
1: Yeah, no. We need, we need, we need a substitute. It's terrible. I, I mean, I'm, I'm open to suggestion, but let's replace it.
0: Okay. So, what do we call ourselves?
1: Um, I don't know. Ma- masticator.
0: Wait, what? Masticator? Oh, 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 oh masticator. <laughs> okay. Um, <coughs> one who chews. Okay. Yeah. Well, I've toyed with the term gourmand, but that one just feels a little too hoity-toity for me. I mean, I'm not a scoffier here. I'm just a guy who likes to eat.
1: Yeah. No, yeah, that's not good either.
0: Well, you have this fascinating new documentary called Wasted, and this is actually the second documentary you've done just this year after your film about Chef Jeremiah Tower. That's on top of your television show and the travel schedule that comes along with that. Plus, you've got your own publishing imprint. You put out a new cookbook, and now you're working on an Epicurean market as well. How the hell do you juggle all that, Anthony? Aren't you in a constant state well, of exhaustion?
1: I'm a guy who uh, needs a project always. Yeah. I need a to-do list. Uh, maybe I'm, overcompens- maybe I'm, I'm overcompensating for the lazy hippie I know lives inside me. Uh <laughs> But I I guess generally speaking, I like to make things. I'm just, you know, I'm making, you know, I used to make uh, food. Now I make TV and other stuff that interests me. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing things that I like and that I'm passionate about. And it's very satisfying putting all the little pieces together. And, you know, that
0: makes me happy. And you freely admit to having indulged in myriad vices throughout your early years. Do you maintain such a full plate these days in part to keep yourself out of trouble?
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh you know, idle hands are devil's hands, you know, the devil's hands. I, I you yeah. know, I agree with that. I I uh definitely I shouldn't be, you know, I shouldn't be laying in bed uh watching the Simpsons uh gazing occasionally at the ceiling and contemplating the mysteries of the universe that leads to, like, to bad behavior.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the schedule has to be rough. I mean, I'm sure you get people all the time who come up to you and say, "Gosh, I wish I could be you, Tony," or I wish that CNN would pay me to travel around the world and eat great meals all the time. Your show, Parts Unknown, does a great job of creating the illusion that you're just a guy on your own, traveling light and going wherever the day's events take you. But I know what it takes to pull off a show like that. I'm sure you probably have a very tight production schedule. You're in one day and out the next and on to a next location. Got to get this or that shot before sundown. You've got a crew following you around. With all that going on behind the scenes, do you still actually get to relax and enjoy the places you visit?
1: I do. Um, you know, the, some of the times that I really look forward to on the road are when the shooting day is over and I, you know, I find myself in some little local bar or noodle shop sitting on low plastic stools somewhere in Southeast Asia with my camera, with my uh with my camera crew and director and drinking beer, eating spicy noodles, reflecting on the day and talking about the shows that we're going to do in the future and you know what 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 new thing we might try or what what new editing style or 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 look or sound uh what we're going to do next that's uh you know w- we have a lot of moments you know where where the shooting day is over and you know we find ourselves sitting on a dune together looking out over the empty quarter of uh you know Oman or Saudi Arabia and You know, even after all these years, you know, it's a pinch me moment of uh, thinking, wow, I'm, you know, we're really lucky.
0: So did it feel like a little bit of a break to work on this documentary where you can sleep in your own bed and just go to the recording studio and do some voiceovers?
1: Uh, I don't know. I call it a break. I mean, it's just another thing that I that I do that makes me happy. Yeah. You know, always in motion.
0: Well, this film, Wasted, opens with you talking to the camera and admitting that you're a very reluctant activist. Yeah. You don't advocate for causes very often, and you say, I think half-jokingly, that you really didn't even want to do this film. It's true. What were your initial reservations?
1: Uh, I am by nature a skeptic. You know, I travel around the world a lot, and I'm constantly entering, uh, spending time with cultures, with very different belief systems than my own very different situations uh uh you know I go in thinking it's going to be one way uh, or that I'm going to be unsympathetic to 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 the place that I am and I I'm so often surprised and what I thought going in ends up being turned on its head so by nature I like to go in thinking I know nothing I I don't I like mm-hmm. being wrong about things so to believe in anything absolutely, to announce uh, without regret or ambivalence that, that, that you know, this is absolutely true and you should believe it as well, uh, that's not something that comes naturally to me. But I guess maybe because I've come up in the old school French cooking system, maybe because I've traveled and spent so much time in the world where people are, are hungry and, and doing the best they can, often with very little, uh, this is an issue that, that really, uh, you know, strikes close to the bone.
0: Well, four years ago, you left the Travel Channel and debuted your show Parts Unknown on CNN. I'd imagine that being on an actual news network, you probably feel less pressure to keep it light and have more freedom to delve into deeper issues and maybe mix in some geopolitics along with the fun segments, do you think that's at least part of the reason why you're more comfortable with your role as an activist now?
1: Well, no, not really. I'm certainly under no pressure to do that. I've never received a phone call from the network ever, in fact, suggesting anything or even starting with the words, how about, or wouldn't it be a great idea? Uh, They've just given me a lot more freedom to do whatever I want. And, you know, if I choose to do an entire hour of just straight-up food porn or whether I choose to do a show with very little food at all, uh, that is my privilege and my pleasure.
0: Let me ask you this. If we were to delve into the dark recesses of the Anthony Bourdain (laughs) subconscious— Is there maybe an <laughs> element of this newfound activism that might be considered penance yeah, for your yeah. libertine youth and all the drugs and debauchery?
1: Uh, maybe. I think that's true of all of the chefs involved in the, in you yeah. know, so many chefs are involved in hunger issues and in uh, food waste issues. And I, I think maybe that does have uh, uh, something to do with, with how much waste we see.
0: You came up as a chef in the business during the so-called me decade of the 1980s and nowhere was that more the case than in New York City at a time when excess and conspicuous consumption were at their zenith. In the heady 80s in the kitchens where you worked, was food waste a concern that chefs talked about back then?
1: No. Uh, well, you were you were not to be caught wasting food that could be turned into money. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's for sure. But it was certainly not a... a it wasn't a national issue. Uh, the... It, it it was it was it was the ethic of the old school chef who used to come over and look in the garbage and see if you know you were peeling too much off the potato or if you were saving the celery tops that could be used for stock that sort of thing
0: but certainly among consumers food waste wasn't much of a consideration i mean i can certainly remember the days and you probably can too when the very idea of asking for a doggy bag in a restaurant much less a good restaurant was considered rude or cheap, bad manners, even an insult to the chef. But restaurant goers seem to have gradually come around to that idea so that now taking home leftovers isn't the red letter of shame that it used to be. Was that change in thinking perhaps the first victory in this battle against food waste?
1: (laughs) Maybe so. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. People are hungry out there, you know, Mm -hmm. don't waste.
0: How about you? When you're eating out, are you a guy who— isn't embarrassed to ask for a doggy bag or a to-go box?
1: Uh you know, I'm really cl- I'm you know, when I eat food, I have I i I can imagine what the portion's gonna be like and I order what I need. I I pretty much clean I mean yeah. I'm a member of the clean plate club most times.
0: When I think about restaurants today, especially chain restaurants, so often the portions are just huge. They're like something out of the flintstones. It's yeah, almost yeah. inviting waste. <laughs> I wonder, do you think that there's more food waste involved with a meal consumed in a restaurant versus a home-cooked meal? No. Really?
1: Uh, Probably at home. Uh, The average household uh, wastes thousands, and uh, the average supermarket deliberately wastes uh, probably the greatest share, and then industrial farming probably the most of all.
0: When you were a chef at restaurants like Supper Club and Brasserie Layal, on an average night, how much food do you suppose ended up in the dumpster?
1: Gee, I don't know. I mean, the stuff coming back from the dining room a lot. Uh, yeah. You know, people's eyes bigger than their stomachs, or they get too drunk, or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. No, we we you know we were old school French restaurant. We were very careful to use every little bit. I mean, you know, if there's some way, you know, if there were meat scraps, we figured out a way to how to you know make soup, make stew, make a salad, uh, or serve it to the staff.
0: There's a lot of food waste with fish in particular because most Americans only eat the fillet and don't even want to look at the rest of the fish. You know, in Asia, serving a whole fish on the bone is common, head's tail and all. And that's slowly starting to become more common in restaurants here in the U.S. But I think you say in the film that when you were a young chef... If you dared to serve a customer a whole fish, they'd throw a fit and send it back, right?
1: Yeah, back in the old day, if you, yeah, if you serve fish on the bone, which any chef understands is the most delicious way right. to serve it, uh, customers would send it back, horrified. That That's changed, mm-hmm.
0: too. Yeah, I love going to a Chinese or a Thai restaurant where they cook the whole fish with all kinds of spices and vegetables. I mean, that's the best way to eat a fish. Yeah, and it's definitely. It's crazy because... We're always hearing about how the ocean's being overfished and whole species are in danger of extinction, while at the same time, there's so much fish waste, partly because commercial fishermen catch literally tons of so-called trash fish in their nets while they're fishing for more quote-unquote desirable fish like tuna, salmon, or mahi-mahi. And as a result of all that, perfectly good edible fish gets thrown away.
1: We have very arbitrary and ever-changing tastes in fish. What's hot one year is uh, not wanted the next, and uh, we are coming around. I mean, um, there are so many delicious uh, varieties of seafood out there that, are, are, are that people don't want or would be difficult to sell or maybe aren't pretty or, you know, have bones and stuff like that. But these are, you know, these are often the most flavorful and delicious of uh, sea creatures, and, uh, you know, uh, I hope we uh, learn to appreciate them.
0: Yeah, and in Wasted, your pal Mario Batali talks with his head chef at ESCA, David Pasternick, who that guy, I think, might be the P.T. Barnum of fish marketing. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> it, so. It seems that David and other chefs are getting pretty clever about rebranding the types of fish that customers think they don't want. Sometimes, is that all it takes, just a new name?
1: Well, we long, ago, we long ago learned that if you want to sell a, a fish with a, an unattractive name, you just call it like golden snapper or mangrove <laughs> snapper or just any kind of, you know, mystery snapper and people would, you know, pretty much buy anything.
0: Okay. So chefs aren't beyond getting a little sneaky when it comes to combating food waste.
1: Yeah, but better yet in these times to just say, you know, I have an exciting dish for you. It's called bouillabaisse. And, yeah. you know, that is exactly, you know, it's a bunch of trash fish in a delicious sauce.
0: We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Anthony Bourdain when we come back in just a minute. Hey folks, now Anthony Bourdain will tell you, as a chef, fresh ingredients are essential. And they don't come any fresher than HelloFresh, the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking fun so you can focus on the whole experience, not just the final plate. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices like myself to seasoned cooks like Anthony Bourdain who might be short on time. They source the freshest ingredients delivered right to your doorstep in a recyclable insulated box for free, and they measure everything to the exact quantities needed so there's no food waste. Now, what were we just talking about? HelloFresh is now offering light fall meals, and they've just introduced breakfast options, all for less than $10 a meal. And you can even get $30 off your first week of deliveries by visiting HelloFresh.com and entering KICK30 when you subscribe. That's HelloFresh.com and promo code KICK30. HelloFresh. Get cooking. And now, back to the podcast. And the thing is, American chefs have a long history of taking food that no one wants and turning them into high-priced delicacies. We're really good at that. I'm thinking 100 years ago when lobster was something rich people fed to their servants. Yeah or how caviar and oysters used to be cheap bar snacks at around the turn of the century. Now they're considered luxuries. And I know, Tony, that you're a big proponent of snout-to-tail gastronomy, but tell me this. How the hell do you sell Americans on eating a pig rectum?
1: Look, I don't think we're going to be eating pig rectum anytime soon. But certainly pigtails are incredibly delicious, and I assure you uh, a prepared and marketed right uh, all America would be uh, screaming for them, and I anticipate they will.
0: This kind of snout-to-tail cooking where you try to use as many parts of the animal as possible seems to have made some strides here in the U.S. when it comes to meat products and butchers promoting organ meats and delicious parts of the animal that maybe don't happen to be the filet or the tenderloin. But we haven't been as good at promoting this same principle when it comes to fish, like we talked about, and also especially vegetables. I've never heard of a stems-to-root movement. Which is a real shame because it's stunning how many of the vegetables we grow in this country end up going to waste because they never even leave the farm.
1: Yeah. Um, hopefully that will change, too. We're certainly eating more bitter greens, regional greens, mm-hmm. uh, things like that. Those things are starting to pop up on uh, uh, restaurant menus, unfortunately on high-end restaurant menus for the most part. Mm-hmm. But uh, but then again, you know, throughout rural America, I assure you, go to go to West Virginia right now and, you know, they know how to eat that stuff and they right. know what to do and they know how to make it good.
0: Right, because we're always hearing about the struggle of the American farmer. So I would think that they would be heavily motivated to make the most of those crops and maximize profits, wouldn't you?
1: Well, they, they don't have a market for it. The, the market demand, supermarkets mm-hmm. demand pretty vegetables, right. uniform vegetables. Uh, and, you know, so that, you know, it's unfair to... You know, mm-hmm. uh, blame them entirely, uh, if at all. I mean, they're they, you know, they, they produce what sells. They have to. And and the pressure on them to do that is is pretty yeah. overwhelming.
0: So a blotchy potato or a misshapen tomato just gets tossed out, huh?
1: Yeah, often or left in the fields, yes.
0: Yeah, and the funny thing is I don't think the average consumer would even recognize a cauliflower if yeah. they saw it in the field because we strip away apparently 60% of it before it even gets on the truck.
1: Yeah, I know. It's
0: shameful. You know, one would think in this day and age that we could genetically modify these crops so that there's fewer of the leaves or the stuff that people don't want and more of the meat of the vegetable that they do want. Do you know if anyone's working on that?
1: Uh, You know, I think people are so wary of... It's such a hot-button issue. People are so hostile to the -hmm. the idea of genetic modification and so distrustful of the people who are doing it and who control that technology that I don't think we're going to be seeing, you know... uh, uh, and I don't want to see those things. You know, I don't want to see, a, you know, every tomato totally. perfect. You know, it's the imperfection in life that makes it yeah. interesting.
0: I don't want to get on too much of a tangent, but what are your feelings about GMO crops?
1: Look, I'm not opposed in principle to the technology. I mean, we've been genetically modifying animals and, uh, and uh, agricultural products since the beginning of time. Uh, and if you can create a super tomato that will feed 20 people rather than one – yeah, particularly in this world, that would be great. Uh, but like a lot of people, I'm very distrustful of the way in which it is marketed, distributed, controlled, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for what purposes. You know, it's like, uh, you know, it's there. Um, I would just like to be sure that it is being used responsibly, and I, I don't feel that way right now. I, I'm not instinctively against it. I like to think that I'm open-minded against uh, uh, about it, just like I am about technology in general, Uh, I just I wish I had more faith in the corporations that control it uh, and and the way it is uh, administered or sold.
0: And whether it's GMOs or food waste, it does seem that people's position on these issues is heavily influenced by socioeconomics. I mean, a family in sub-Saharan Africa probably could not care less whether they eat genetically modified rice. That's completely a first world luxury. And as someone who's seen a good portion of the world both dining at Michelin starred restaurants in Paris and witnessing extreme poverty in places like Haiti and Ethiopia, how do you reconcile those two worlds?
1: Uh look, one should inform the other. You know, when you've when you've seen people mm-hmm. go hungry, uh when you see how hard they work to, to to put food on the table, you see how much they can do uh with so little throughout history and, and in different cultures, it's a humbling experience and uh, hopefully it enriches and informs uh, your life when you go back to your relatively comfortable circumstances.
0: Okay, so let's say that we have the will to end food waste and world hunger purely from a logistical standpoint. How do you get that overabundance sitting on a shelf at a Whole Food store to a starving five-year-old in Somalia? Uh, how does that you know,
1: work? Gee, uh, shame the corporation into doing something uh, is a start. Uh <laughs> If, if they don't react, uh, bring your business elsewhere, walk the extra block. Uh, mm-hmm. Look, it, you know, that, that's tough. But uh, look, uh, you know, the consumer has the power to change the market. We see it all the time. You know, mm-hmm. McDonald's and uh, a lot of the fast food outlets are struggling. Um, um, the, you know, the, the, the things we ask for, you know, look at the organic options available in supermarkets now that, that, that didn't exist before. Uh, you know, they will give us what we want, and they will remove what we don't want.
0: And I suppose part of the issue is that consumers are ignorant of a lot of these things. A working parent probably doesn't have the time to do the research on the food they eat. But, for instance, this film points out that expiration dates, sell-by dates, best-before dates on food products are often arbitrary dates created by the company to sell more product. Yeah. Or, for example, I think a lot of people, and even restaurant owners themselves— Think there's some kind of regulation that prohibits them from repurposing food or donating food that's not used. Is there any actual law that says a restaurant or a person can't give away uneaten food or repackage it for some use somewhere down the food chain? Uh, I'm not sure there, there. I, I believe city by city or
1: state by state, there are yeah. certain restrictions on, you know, what food you can give away mm-hmm. and under what circumstances, when when provided with uh, easily accessible outlets right. to
0: do that. And all of this gets to something that features heavily in the film Wasted, which is the food waste pyramid. Now, I remember the food pyramid from elementary school, but can you walk us through the food waste pyramid? What is that?
1: You know what? I I don't think I can. Yeah, my my short-term memory was destroyed in the 80s, so I don't think I can help you there. Okay, fair enough. Charts. Who looks at
0: charts? (laughs) Well, I don't know if I can remember them all, but I think the first level was ideally we consume the food we buy. The next level is we give it to someone else who needs it if we don't want it. And I think the third or fourth level is to turn it into food for animals. And that gets into some fascinating innovations being employed in places like Japan where they take table scraps and recycle it into pig feed. And it's funny to me that this is somehow a new thing because I may be getting my information from cartoons, but I thought old lettuce, apple cores, and garbage was what we fed to pigs all along. But apparently this artisanal pig slop in Japan actually makes for better tasting pork, and at the same time, it saves the farmers something like, I think, a third or half of their feed costs. It sounds like it's a win-win all around.
1: Yeah, they're, feeding spe- they're separating out specific types mm-hmm. of waste and essentially raising boutique pigs with different <laughs> flavor and textural profiles. So, you know, uh, some pigs get seafood scraps. Others get uh, different types of scraps that, that uh, you know, make them taste different for unique markets and, uh, and, and appetites. And it's been very, very successful. As well, composting uh, uh, has uh, you know is useful uh, when 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 provided with uh, easily accessible outlets to do that.
0: What are the biggest motivators for people who are adjusting to cut out more food waste? Is it altruism, profit, environmentalism, regulation, maybe even in some cases deregulation?
1: All, look, all of the above. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, before ne- before it becomes a necessity, uh, you know, let's get ahead of the problem. Also. You know, it it can be satisfying and fun—the smug satisfaction of doing the right thing, learning to cook, learning to cook a little better, uh, learning how to cook. Uh, you know, uh, introducing people you care about to good food. Um, you know, look, whatever reason you do it, let's do it.
0: When it comes to food waste, what stage in the food supply chain is the worst offender? Is it the farms, the grocers, the restaurants, the consumer, or is there equal blame to uh, go around? The
1: farms, fa- farms, and supermarkets, I think, are are, are are bad. You know, are bad. But I mean, the average household wastes thousands of dollars of food a year as well.
0: On the other hand, who are some of the good guys who are at the forefront of this battle to end waste?
1: Well, look, I think maybe because chefs have been so close to this issue for so long and see it up close, uh, a lot of chefs like Eric Repair, uh, Mario Batali, Jose Andres have, for a very long time, been very deeply involved in hunger issues, uh, uh, doing what they can to minimize waste or repurpose food or or, uh, get it directly to people in need. You know, or or just straight up raise money in in any way possible for these issues. So uh, the chef community have been real leaders in this area, uh,
0: ironically enough. Mm -hmm. And yourself, of course, too, and not solely out of altruism or do-goodery, because it seems that whenever you travel on your show as a chef and as someone who loves food, you're most attracted to the kind of simple dishes and peasant food born out of poverty and necessity where the cooks had to get creative and had to make the most of what they had if they didn't want to starve. Isn't that the kind of stuff you enjoy the most? Well, that,
1: that's the engine that has driven every great gastronomy, whether French, Italian, Chinese. Uh, that That's the way old-school cooks have always cooked, where all the great dishes came from. And it's, of course, where the kind of food that chefs are most emotional and sentimental about, the challenges the most to cook, and which they enjoy eating after work. You know, most chefs, even at very high-end restaurants, they don't want to eat foie gras and little stacks of pretty food and foam after work. They want to... Mm-hmm. They want a bowl of decent pasta that tastes like somebody's grandmother made it. And in fact, what we're asking in this film is essentially to look at the world of food or to look at your ingredients in the same way that any Italian grandmother would as, as, as a problem to be solved. How will I make something tough and not particularly expensive into the maximum amount of something delicious? You know, the classic Italian Sunday gravy or ragu would be, you know, maybe the best, most classic example of that.
0: What are some of your other personal go-tos?
1: Look, I mean, what are the hottest items in restaurants right now? The pork belly and, you know, uh, pig's head. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these are hotshot hipster items. But, <laughs> uh, you know, classic uh, peasant dishes would be uh, beef bourguignon, pot au feu, au vin. I can assure you the first person to eat a snail, in escargot, was not a gourmet. <laughs> that was one hungry SOB, yeah. uh, you know, who figured maybe if I put enough garlic butter on that thing, maybe I can eat it. Um <laughs> You know, this is the story of food through history.
0: You just named a few of my favorite dishes right there. Yeah, Well, I threw it out to the listeners. If they have some questions for you, and I got quite a response. I think it must have been at least 50 to 100 questions. I was sort of surprised in the Venn diagram of kick-ass news and parts unknown. There's actually a pretty good overlap. (laughs) Maybe Um, so. I'll run a couple of these by you if you don't mind. Sure. First, Jerry in Minnesota asks, what's the most outside of your comfort zone that you've ever been?
1: Oh, I don't know. Maybe Libya, just not too long after Benghazi. Uh, that was a little tense. Uh, yeah. Congo uh, near Kisangani. Uh, also, some tense moments.
0: Yeah, I think the Libya episode was one of your first shows for CNN. Yes. And I remember an even earlier one when I think you were in Lebanon when a war broke out.
1: Oh, that was two thousand two thousand six, 2006, uh, Beirut, uh, the Beirut, the, the Israel-Lebanon war. Yeah.
0: What was that like?
1: Uh, heartbreaking.
0: I know you like to get out of your comfort zone, but you're not a war correspondent. Were you nervous? Were you scared? You must have been.
1: No, I think more depressed and ashamed really? and, and, uh, and brokenhearted to see this beautiful city uh, pounded wow. back 20 years. Yeah,
0: because that used to be, uh, people used to call it the Paris of the Middle East, I think, back in the day, before all of this started. Yeah, Indeed. Well, the next question I have for you is from Sarah in Colorado. She says, I've never left the United States, but I long to travel as soon as my wallet catches up with my wanderlust. If I could visit just one country, where should I go?
1: I don't know. Um, Vietnam is pretty awesome. Yeah, great food, great people, beautiful scenery, very diverse uh, landscape uh, and regions, uh, very pro-American, relatively safe, affordable, and again, delicious, delicious food. Cooked proudly by people who love food.
0: Yeah, I think I read that Vietnam was the only country that you've done two shows about, right?
1: Perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I love it. there. I go back whenever I can.
0: Can you make a decent bowl of pho?
1: I wouldn't know. I just, uh, I know what I like. I wouldn't even dare uh, try to cook it. Yeah. That is not in my background. It took me a yeah. long time to learn how to cook French uh, bistro and brasserie food competently. I would not dare yeah. uh, attempt, uh, you know, centuries of, uh, of Vietnamese uh, repetition and, uh, and training.
0: Well, I'll just ask you one more question. And to be honest, I'm not sure, but this may very well be from a five-year-old. Um, <laughs> Kristen in Los Angeles wants to know, what is your favorite cookie?
1: My favorite cookie. Wow. Or we can just say I dessert. If I like you want. I like coconut macaroons. They're they're delicious.
0: Yeah. Well, I know a lot of chefs aren't very big on dessert. Are you a big dessert guy?
1: I'm not really. I like a big hunk of uh, of uh, Stilton cheese and a glass of port.
0: Oh, you're a man after my own heart. Now I'll take cheese over dessert any day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now before we go, I have to ask a favor of you, Tony. Sure. I know that we've established that you're a reluctant advocate and activism really isn't your thing, but I'm begging you. Would you please, please consider coming to California and take a stand against this idiotic foie gras ban that's now been newly resurrected? Talk some sense into these people.
1: Uh, Yeah, I did it once. I'll do it again. Don't you think if the
0: people who hate on foie gras so much just had one taste of it? they'd happily concede, and that would just end all arguments right there.
1: Or, Or just bother to learn how it's actually made and under what circumstances.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. Unfortunately, no one seems to want to bother. Yeah. Well, once again, Wasted, the story of food waste, opens in theaters, On Demand, Amazon, and iTunes on Friday, October 13th. And you can catch his show, Parts Unknown, on CNN. Anthony Bourdain, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Good to be with you. Thanks again to Anthony Bourdain for joining me on the podcast. Once more, Wasted, the story of food waste, opens in theaters and on demand Amazon and iTunes beginning Friday, October 13th. For more information, visit WastedFilm.com. Keep up with him on his website, ExplorePartsUnknown.com or on Twitter at at Bourdain. Today's episode was sponsored by Nadex. Imagine if you could choose your maximum risk and reward up front. That way you could try day trading the markets without worrying about the risk. Well, luckily you can with binary options on Nadex. Trade global stock indexes, commodities, forex, even economic numbers, all from one account and always with limited risk. See why over 100,000 members choose Nadex. Find out more at nadex.com. Trading on Nadex involves risk and may not be appropriate for all investors. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on Apple Podcasts and rate and review us while you're there. And please take a moment to take our listener survey at podsurvey.com slash kick so we can get to know who's listening and it's also helpful with our advertisers. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at Pod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News.